0: Welcome everyone, this is Manuela Cimiegas, the director of the Andrews Family Fund, coming live to you, as live as we can get on a podcast recording, for Out of the Margins, this season's first recording. What we do is we often interview grantee partners um, and other powerful folks from the community to just share their story. So the layout um, in this new season is like, I stopped by at your house, took my shoes off at the door sat at the kitchen table and we're having a cafecito, some coffee and snacks and we're just social, like casual. We're really trying to go there. um, Giving our folks a space to learn and share. Um, We're very excited you could be with us today. We are recording this podcast in the middle of week two of the rebellions that have been taking place nationally in response to the murder of George Floyd and honestly the incessant police violence that has been waged on black brown and indigenous communities for centuries and so we are in phenomenal company today and are really happy to hold the complexity of what it means to be a human in this country in this moment a human who believes in social justice a human who believes in human rights a person who loves family who loves young people a person who believes in real safety in communities um we are all doing our respective roles and as, as Andrew's Family Fund seeks to support leaders of color and youth-led organizations in policy organizing, advocacy, narrative building, We are also very much committed to helping bring about the rest of philanthropy to become the best partners we can be to movements in this critical moment. And so we're really honored that you take the time to sit with us and listen to two phenomenal leaders who will be with us today. Um, Our podcast today is focused on the voices and visions of Native youth and Native serving communities uh, across the country. So I am blessed to have Eric Stegman, the Director of Native Americans in Philanthropy, a new director who was with us in a previous program when he was out at the Center for Native American Youth out of the Aspen Institute. So we just want to celebrate Eric for his new leadership at NAP. Um, when we think about the original peoples of this land, we want to definitely pause and all of us acknowledge the land that we are all on. Um, and really take our cue from the oldest ancestors of this land who have been holding down the spirit of rebellion and resistance to colonization and white supremacy before any of us were born. And so we want to acknowledge this land and acknowledge those original ancestors who are, I hope, standing tall as the trees and celebrating the resistance that they're seeing on the streets in this moment. We are also joined by George Galvez from Courage, a really powerful native and youth of color serving organization who has been on the front lines for um, more than a decade, I believe, really fighting for all of the important reforms, and I would even say transformations needed to uh, California communities that are looking to um, end this system of criminalization and violence affecting all of our communities. We have all bared witness to the violence that has been wielded um, against all peoples really in this nation, but primarily the indigenous and people of color um, that we are all here to serve. And so I just wanna celebrate that these leaders have graced us with a moment of their time and pulled themselves out of urgent frontline community work to sit with us today and share wisdom and hopefully encourage all of you to deepen your understanding of what it means to show up for black and brown young people in this critical moment. I would love to invite you, George, to start. Um, If you could tell us a little bit about you. How did you get to this work? Where are you from? Who do you represent? Um, And, you know, tell us the story of why you are now leading work on youth justice.
1: Right on. Thank you, Manuela, for having me. Um... Well, I have um, the distinct honor, privilege to work with young people like myself. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I like to kind of go back and share my earliest memory you know, because I think that this is really informative in terms of how I got involved in this work. Um, and my earliest memory is um, unfortunately of very profound domestic violence in my home. Um, I remember fearing for my mother's life I remember um, my father looking like this huge ball of fury, you know, as a three-year-old, you know, I remember it was like the big uh, incredible Hulk TV series at that time. And, 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 and my father, that's what he looked like, the epitome of rage and his fists were like going through the walls. Like they were paper, you know? And I remember my mother being choked and turning blue and, uh, and I remember having to run across the hall to, uh, to the neighbor's house to ask for help. And, um, and the violence that was produced in my home, I ended up reproducing on the streets against other young men who looked like me because I looked like my father. And I was um, numbing my pain through violence till I was incarcerated at the age of 17. And I was confronted with doing um, multi- you know, for multiple felonies for my involvement in a drive-by shooting. And um, when I was able to come home, uh, you know, beginning at the age of 19, I found my way into community college campus. And that's where I would say my healing journey began. And I would say that there were really probably three fundamental things that were um, instrumental. <clears throat> and one was um, cultural awareness. One of the staff at the community college. He was, in fact, the custodian, but he was also a veteran of the American Indian movement. And um, you know, I was looking for an—I was looking for something to hold on to, like a way to articulate the things that I'd felt my entire life, my childhood, many of which had been dismissed. Things that we're talking about now in terms of institutionalized racism, inequality, colonialism. Uh, things that I felt in my gut, but, you know, were really kind of discredited, delegitimized de- in the classroom, you know, and one of the reasons why I rejected public education was rebelling against something, you know, um, that I knew uh, to not necessarily fit that, you know, uh, my, my story and my experience, my lived experience. And so um, ethnic studies was a big part of my healing journey. Um, you know, I began to read Franz Fanon, Paulo Freire, um and um community involvement became a big part of it you know i immediately from that moment started working and mentoring you know middle school students you know i was i was a young person myself but we began to organize with middle school students and then started mentoring and working with high school students that were just maybe a few years younger than us so community involvement cultural awareness and of course higher education so the ethnic studies that i described those were kind of the things and those are the things that i try to Really, kind of lift up in the work that we do with young people today. Um, and when I say cultural awareness, too, you know, we say culture is our healing, it's our um, strength, and it's our recovery. And so, for me at that moment, it was probably really important because as I'm gaining um, that vocabulary, as I'm getting better read, I remember also being infuriated uh, that these things weren't taught to us. I thought about friends who maybe would still be alive. You know, we wouldn't maybe have gotten caught up in the madness of the streets so heavily if we had been taught our culture, our history, these things, right, um, and those who were incarcerated. But what helped, what helped was, was, was also being introduced to ceremony, being able to take time to feed my spirit, to heal, and beginning to understand the concepts of historical intergenerational trauma, right? And we have a post-colonial stress disorder Our our relatives of African descent have a post slave stress syndrome. Um, But what I know about both of our cultures is we also have historical intergenerational wisdom. And that, you know, and, and our ceremonies and the traditions of our ancestors that have kept us healthy since time immemorial became a big part of my healing journey. So the foundation for courage is something that we call healing centered youth organizing, movement building, and leadership development. Some people refer to it as a healing justice movement. There's other folks across the country who are thinking about these things, but I believe in Indigenous communities and First Nations communities. This has always been the case. We never compartmentalize these things. You know, this has always been the way. You know, and I think that you know, even the example of the American Indian movement, right? Um, you know, and how much you know, reclaiming, relearning, and returning to a lot of these traditional ceremonies, and for a lot of urban Indigenous people who um, became. Very disconnected from culture, language, and maybe even their tribal nations. You know, being able to connect to the inipi, the sun dance. You know, the pipe, the drum, some of those things. You know, many from adopted from our our, our Lakota, Dakota, Nakota relatives. You know, um, and offered. You know, for for many of our urban, uh, you know, intertribal community, as a way of reconnecting. Because what we know is that the core teachings, regardless of our uh, respective tribal nations, those core teachings and values remain consistent
0: that's really powerful george and we're going to return to you in a little bit to learn a little more about what you're seeing in your communities and what courage is doing in this moment um but i want to turn to welcome our second guest eric from native americans and philanthropy eric it's so wonderful to have you on our show again i think you might be the only person who we had on our show twice And um, so we want to celebrate that. And I will say, you know, when we think about uh, what that means for us, it really is uh, the beginning of um, repair of the harm that philanthropy has wielded um, on Native communities. We know that the percentage of philanthropic dollars flowing to Native communities is the smallest across any other community. Um, And so we recognize that. We need to lift up our voices and continue to um, push our colleagues to, to make money flow back to the communities that have produced and essentially um, where, whose wealth this was taken from. So I want to welcome you and celebrate your powerful leadership for Native Americans in philanthropy. And so, you know, you're now heading this national organization and that serving um, Native Americans in philanthropy and the rest of philanthropy who want to learn and learn, study how to actually move into action to support Native communities. Like, what does that mean for you in your personal journey to be in this seat, in this role, in this moment?
2: Well, it's so great to see you again, Manuela. And I know last time we were actually in person when we got to um, do an interview, I hope we get to see each other in person again sometime soon. And, um, George, I just want to say that was it's, um, it's really an honor to Um, hear more of your story um, than I have before and that um, it's really powerful and just really want to honor you for uh, sharing that. Um, And I think it's a really good way, I think, to explain sort of how I'm uh, approaching my um, new tenure here at Native American Philanthropy. Um, I've been pretty honest with everyone that uh, youth leadership is going to be at the heart of my work for the rest of my career, (laughs) and that's definitely the case at NAP. Um, Just recently, I I, um, finished several years uh, running the Center for Native American Youth at the Aspen Institute and uh, George's words uh, just rang through to me on so many levels because I think all Native people, no matter where we come from, are dealing with a legacy of cultural destruction And I think our young people have always been really um, front and center when it comes to identifying every way they can to not only keep the culture, um, but to also really find innovative ways to sustain it, to nurture it. And it really is our pathway to healing. And I think one of the things that I really learned a lot from my um, tenure at, at CNAY was the power for indigenous youth leaders to actually lead um, other young people of color with their culture. Um, I think one of the things that was pretty profound in a lot of the work that we did with with youth leaders all over the country was just that a, a lot of other young people, you know, if they're, you know, black kids, um, Latino kids, um, from any other community, a lot of times they actually don't have the confidence and the strength to claim their own culture. And I think there's a lot of uh, power um, in really uh, bringing young organizers together from across those um, uh, cultural communities because I think a lot of what we're seeing today is a cultural movement, and I think that um, we have a lot of wisdom to bring as, as the you know the peoples and cultures of uh, this continent that have been here for many generations. But I think that there's a lot of uh, lessons to be taught and learned um, by others who are struggling with some of these same kinds of system issues. Uh, you know, when I was younger, um, uh, there was a lot of reasons I was pissed off and wanted to um, support sovereignty and. <laughs> Didn't really know what I ended up becoming a lawyer, which is um, Indians are really good at spitting out lawyers these days to go protect our treaties. Um, but you know, it really came back to my uh, grandfather, and my great grandfather's history um, in in what they went through over several generations. My great grandfather went to a boarding school in Canada, which was part of a, a pretty uh, seriously um, destructive system in both the U.S. Canada, Australia, Greenland, you've seen these systems all over the world, but they had a specific policy intent to assimilate students, to take them away from their families forcibly, uh, to discipline them for speaking their language and practicing their traditions and to really acculturate them uh, for white Western economies. Uh, My great grandfather eventually ran away. Uh, And ended up in Chicago. And that's where my family um, sort of got started here in in the US, but my grandfather was actually one of the first American Indian dentists. um, And they're from a a, a reserve up in Canada called the carry the kettle Nakota First Nation and uh, my grandfather um, was doing work on a number of reservations during the termination period, which is when the federal government was literally just saying we don't care about the treaties anymore. We're just going to pull out. We're not going to support, you know, the health education welfare that was promised to our ancestors. Um, And it was a tough time to be a dentist, to try to find clean needles, um, to find ways to support those communities. Um, But the ones who, who fought back and, and rolled back, you know, a pretty detrimental period in our time were youth movements. And this has always been the case. You know, George was talking about the American Indian movement. I was, Uh, Just so inspired to see uh, what um, AIM was doing even in Minneapolis, you know, one of our, uh, one of the best youth programs in the country, Megidze, ended up unfortunately um, being destroyed in some of the fires there, but the immediate Um, response from the community, both Native and and their non-Native allies in Minneapolis was pretty impressive. And um, AIM is actually, you know, organizing community patrols again um, all over the city. And I think, you know, we're going back to a lot of that kind of community building and organizing that's, you know, driven by generations of organizing. And I think it's really inspiring and um, you know, I'm just excited to bring that into philanthropy. Um, so I could go on and on about that, but I think when it comes to philanthropy, I think youth really do actually need to be at, uh, uh, in a leadership position in philanthropy as well. I think in a lot of cases, we've not always answered that question on how to do that in a meaningful, respectful, and powerful way. Uh, we're going to try. We're, uh, we have a couple of different projects um, right now where we're going to be um, really working with a, a large network of Native youth, um, serving in Native youth-led organizations to figure out how we can um, identify a, a leadership team of young Native leaders who want to have those dialogues with funders and who want to challenge them Um, about the kinds of work that they're doing so that those strategies are aligning behind what Native youth know we need to do. We know those are all the things that George mentioned, cultural awareness, community involvement, Um, These are strategies that Native youth have been leading for a long time, but I think a lot of times funders um, are not listening directly to those young people, or they're inviting young people in extractive ways to their meetings, to their convenings. So we're really going to be working with youth leaders first at the community level and, and figuring out, you know, what do you want to tell anyone who funds the work that you're doing and how can we help you Co-create that table, that agenda, and then how can we invite funders to those tables in a really respectful and meaningful way uh, to create a sustained dialogue between uh, Native youth movement leaders and funders? I'm hoping that that will, uh, you know, continue. Uh, to challenge the field more broadly because I know that a lot of the things that we're seeing breaking down with COVID and with, you know, the all the issues around our criminal justice system are directly related to these policies that were set out to destroy our cultures in the first place. And Native youth are out there on the front lines helping um, with the food sovereignty movement to reclaim our food systems. Uh, they're out there um, developing uh, new kinds of wellness um, uh, courts and opportunities to do healing. Um, These are all the things that all our communities need and um, will benefit from. So we're hoping that we can bring that voice into philanthropy as we move forward.
0: That's really exciting to hear, Eric. And, you know, we're clear that, you know, our role is to follow the young people. So I was wondering, George, if you could tell us a little bit, like, what has been happening in your um, local communities around COVID? And then um, how were you guys um, involved in responding? And then what then, what, what else did you have to take on uh, once the uprising started to happen?
1: Absolutely. Um, and before I jump into that, I'd love to just kind of piggyback on one of the things that Eric shared. So he talked a little bit about the Native Youth Center in Minneapolis that was um, burnt down. And, um, and so I've been in communication with uh, my relatives there, my tween, Stephanie Autumn, who's a veteran of American Indian movement and wounded knee and uh, cousins out there became part of those AIM patrols. Um, and what I wanted to say is that, you know, maybe at a different time, maybe 40, 50 years ago, um, that may have created a wedge issue. There's like classic divide and conquer tactics, right? And, um, and so, you know, what I wanted to kind of refer to is we're a little more savvy these days and that we know about Cointel Pro, We know about, um, you know... Um, you know provocateurs and um, some of those elements. And so unfortunately what happened is some of these alt-right white supremacist groups in Minneapolis began to target black owned businesses, native institutions like that center and um, with the hope and desire as well as undercover police with the hope and intention that this would actually turn the tide um, against the um, uprising that was occurring demanding police accountability and an end to the systemic racism you know, um, imposed by law enforcement. And so um, what we've actually seen was on the contrary, you know, uh, Minneapolis has been the center of indigenous and uh, black solidarity. And so we've seen our folks come out and offer traditional jingle dress dances, which is a healing dance that come from the Ojibwe. And um, as a way of, you know, blessing the grounds and offering that healing, um, you know, uh, we've seen drums come out there in solidarity. And what we also know is this, um, you know, in, in the context of this of this land, and you know, the so-called United States, uh, that you know, the very first um, police in this, uh, and you know, were essentially the slave catchers and the cavalry, and the very first prisons were, you know, the slave plantation and the reservation, and you know, uh, and if you know, there was threat of violence, threat of um, of death of being hunted down and killed if you stepped off of either one of those, right? And, um, and those were enforced by the cavalry and the slave patrols. And so it's not a coincidence then that when we look at police terrorism and we look at mass incarceration, the communities that are most impacted are people of indigenous descent and people of African descent. And I wanna point out too, um, that for us as an intertribal community in, in Oakland, we also see indigeneity from a hemispheric perspective. So we embrace all the relatives from Mexico, Guatemala, and you know South America, you know as well, because we recognize that all those borders were constructed, you know, by the colonizer, and that our ancestors, you know, um, had many interactions with each other, you know, um, you know, and you can see that even through the study of language and looking at language families, right? You know, we know that you know what is now traditionally, uh, you know, considered Navajo. Uh, and Apache territory in the Southwest where you know, they, they come from an Athabascan language, they might get graded from the North. You know, we know that what, the people, what people refer to as the Mexica came from the Salt Lake City, Utah area into Mexico City. You know, you know what I mean? Zuni and Mayan connections as well. It's even a part of their creation story. So I, I wanted to just kind of point that out you know, because I think also what's happening is um, in part of this movement for decolonization you know we're seeing that uh we're not a minority for many years we've been called the minority and we're actually a majority and i never like that term because it somehow suggests we're less than you know what i mean and and i say that too to say that you know recognizing we live in a global society and understanding too the african diaspora too because unfortunately as a result of colonialism there was also a lot of folks who internalized anti-blackness and things like that and what we're seeing with the younger generation too um is that they're shedding a lot of those old kind of internalized attitudes, you know what I mean? That were imposed by the colonizer and the solidarity that we're seeing is coming from an organic place, not one of self-interest, but from a really beautiful sacred place of recognizing we don't just have a common pain and a common oppression and a common struggle, but we have a common humanity, a common spirit, uh, you know? So I wanted to kind of just piggyback and share that much. And I forgot what the question was, (laughs) sorry.
0: That was George Galvis from Courage and Eric Stegman from Native Americans in Philanthropy. Stay tuned for the second part of our conversation on Out of the Margins.